your Bibles, I invite you at this time to grab them or grab a device that you brought with you and turn with me to the book of Romans. We are uh, now over, this is our fourth week, specifically in Romans chapter 9. Uh, this is our uncounted week of our study in Romans. Uh, we've been in this book for, for over a year now and, and slowly making our way through it by God's grace. And here we, we come to the ninth chapter. We have been speaking on uh, what Paul is writing about here, this, this teaching, this doctrine of God's election, that he chooses whom he saves, that he chooses to have mercy on whomever he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he hardens. And so this morning we are focusing on verses 19 through 23. I, I want to, to begin, I, I won't read the, the entire section that we've been studying, but I want to begin uh, really in verse 13. And then going all the way through 23 with you. So look with me. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. All right, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he pardons whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What is God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning, and we come, and more than anything else, we come seeking help. Uh, For who can understand the mind of the Lord? Who can discern your thoughts? Who can understand your ways? We do not come this morning presuming, we do not come this morning assuming that we get you, that we can grasp you, that we can understand all that you are. For you are bigger than even our minds can comprehend. But as we come to your word, these, these words, these truths that you have revealed about yourself to us, we come seeking understanding. We come looking for guidance. We come looking for help. Spirit, you have inspired these words and written them down and preserved these words across millennia. For you, Spirit, to inspire these words, would you open our eyes to understand them, to read them, to see them, and more than that, to believe them. Be glorified in the preaching of your word. Be glorified in the receiving of your word. Be glorified in the 
the way that your word goes forth and brings fruit. Transform us. God, sanctify us. God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the, the last few weeks, we have been diving into some deep waters of biblical truth together. Uh, and, and when we do that, when we dive into to the deeper waters of Scripture, I think that we are both confronted and encouraged by what we find in the depth of Scripture. You see, we are confronted, for example, here in Romans 9, we are confronted with a God who is bigger than we ever thought possible. We are confronted with a God who has complete control over every minute detail within his universe. And we are confronted with a God who has us firmly within his grasp and fully under his sovereign control. We are encouraged by this. At least I, I hope that we are encouraged by this. Because within the hands of this sovereign God, we are safe. It is this sovereign God that allows us to sing together whatever my lot God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But I've been equally encouraged over the last few weeks, not, not just by the biblical truth that we've been studying, but I've actually been encouraged by, by many of you. And, and, and I've been encouraged really by, by two groups of people within the church. I think the first group are, are those of you who have embraced this teaching of election. You've maybe heard about it before or are familiar with it previously and, and have, have understood it. You see, you see it clearly in God's Word, and while it may not be easy, it's not easy for anyone. You see it. You believe it. And I'm encouraged because I see this. That is, that is proof that you are capable of understanding deep truths of Scripture. But I, I see it and I'm encouraged by the fact that the Spirit is working among His people to open eyes and to provide understanding. It is your, your understanding of these spiritual truths is evidence of the Spirit's work among you. Because the Spirit that inspired these words illumines these words. And I encourage you. And I hope it encourages you. The second group is those of you who, who maybe struggle with this teaching. Over the last couple of weeks, I've heard from many of you that are, that are wrestling with this teaching, with this doctrine. And I, and I don't say this to, to say that the Spirit is not yet giving you understanding or the Spirit is not providing you insight. That's, that's not at all. What encourages me is the way in which you are wrestling with Scripture. Because it's so easy for us to see when it comes to difficult parts, the parts that our minds can't really comprehend, it, it is very easy for us to just simply pass it off and say, that's not what I believe. Move on. But, that, but you're not doing that. Instead, the conversations that I've had with many of you is one that is rooted in Scripture. One where you are trying to understand how Romans 9 fits with other passages of Scripture. How Romans 9 fits with theology and what the Bible teaches elsewhere. How you are trying to piece together the teachings of Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. Working out what this means and how it fits. You see, I am encouraged by this because you are seeking to understand truth. And at the same time, you know, as do I, that the source of truth comes from Scripture and Scripture alone. Not from our feelings, not our preconceived notions of what we think God should be like, but you are seeking to understand the truth of Scripture. 
Note that as you, let me encourage you as you have encouraged me. Do not stop in this. Continue this study of Scripture. Seek illumination from the Spirit who inspired these words, and by His grace, I believe that He will provide it. This morning, as we continue in this study of Romans 9, I know it's been a couple of heavy weeks, and maybe some of you already put this chapter behind us and moved into chapter 10. I get it. I'm thankful for your patience as we walk through this slowly. Because there's so much to be said in each set of verses that we really could never hope to do justice to this word by just skimming the surface. But at the same time, we should keep in mind that when Paul wrote this letter, when the Roman church first received this letter, they did not take a year to read it. They read it in one sitting. They read it again and again and again and again. And so there's this battle that takes place in my, my study every week. How much do we study in Romans? How many verses should we progress? How far should we go? Should we stop? Should we break it up? Because if we take it too slowly, we will miss the forest or the trees. But if we go too fast, we will just fly right over it all. And so with that being said, again, let me offer another encouragement. In your personal Bible reading. We've been in Romans 9 now for four weeks, and it might, it might be where you have forgotten what the beginning of Romans 9 is even about. More than that, we've been in the book of Romans now for over a year. You may have forgotten what Romans 2 is about. So let me give you two challenges, if you will, for this week. First, read Romans 9 in its entirety twice this week. A simple chapter and a simple challenge. I'm not saying read it and understand every verse. I'm saying just read it in its fullness. Twice. The second challenge is one a little bit bigger, but it's to read through the entire book of Romans to where we are in chapter 9. Read Romans 1 through 9 all together in one go. Take an hour. Take 30 minutes. Take 45 minutes. Sit down and read it. Read it as Paul wrote it. Read it as a, as a letter from, from an apostle to a church. And just read it. And the reason I, I say this is so that you can see a big picture here. We're taking our time. We're going through. We're understanding verse by verse by verse. But when we do that, we run the risk of missing the connecting pieces. We miss how Romans 2 connects to Romans 9. We miss how Romans 3 connects to Romans 5. Because we take months in between them, or years in between them, where Paul let them all to be read at the same time. So as we continue this morning into this passage, here we come. Last week we were in this, this first objection to election that Paul is talking about. And this morning we come to the second objection that is raised against Paul's theology, against the biblical theology of election. And with this objection we see, as Paul responds to it, three, three callings in our lives in light of God's election. Three things we, as God's people, must do as we consider and as we approach this God who sovereignly elects who we take. These three things, these three callings are know your place, check your pride, and consider the purpose. Know your place, check your pride, consider the purpose. And we'll walk through these one by one. So first, know your place. Paul begins, much like he did in the passage that we, we studied last week, He's laid out this argument that all throughout history, all throughout the Old Testament, God has sovereignly elected and, and his people. 
that he has chosen who he will save, who belongs to him, and he has not chosen others. So he's pointing out the fact that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, even though they both belonged and both were children of, of Abraham. He pointed out that he chose Jacob and not Esau. That before either of these twins were born, God elected Jacob and not Esau. And this election is not based on their deeds, whether they were good or bad, or whether they had the potential of good or bad, or the potential of faith. It is simply based on God's choosing and nothing else. That God chose Jacob because he chose Jacob. It is entirely based on God's choice. Lastly, if we look at the, the first objection that is raised to the teaching, if election is true, then that means that God is unfair. He is unrighteous. He is unjust. Because he hardens me and doesn't give me a choice in the matter and then punishes me for not choosing. And that's not fair. And we answered this and we talked about it last week, so if you weren't here, go back and, and hear and listen to that, that message on our website. But this morning, Paul continues into another objection that is raised. And the objection really is given in verse 19. It says this. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, what this objector is saying is that if election is true, then I shouldn't be blamed for my sin. Because the only reason that I sin, and the only reason that my heart is hardened, is because God is the one who hardens it. The reason I sin is because God chooses not to save me. And really what this objection is raising is, I should not be blamed, God should. Because it's his choice, not mine. And before we get into this too deeply, I, I think we should stop and let me point something out to The fact that these two objections being raised, that God is unrighteous and that God should be punished for this, the fact that these are the objections that are being raised in Paul's discussion show us that we are on the right track in understanding Paul. You should take the first objection. If salvation is up to our choices, if it's to our accepting Jesus, to doing the right thing, and if that's what Paul is saying here, why would the objection ever be raised about God being unrighteous? If God punishes me because I didn't choose him, because I didn't choose Jesus, then we can't say or would never even think about the question about God being unrighteous. Because the fact of the matter is, is that he punishes and judges me because I didn't choose him. But if God judges me and condemns me when my salvation is dependent on his choice, then the objection makes sense. And there's this objection. Why did God still find fault? Who can resist his will? See, this question would never be asked if we were talking about God's sovereign, if, if we aren't talking about God's sovereign election of individuals. But in this question being asked, why did God still find fault? We get this, don't we? We feel this. As we struggle with this doctrine of election, but we all struggle with it, myself included, we understand this objection. How can you still blame me? what this objection is really saying, what our hearts are really saying is, you can't blame me for this, God. 
the person responsible for my sin, for my rejection of God, for my rebellion, is not me, but it's God, because apparently he's the one in control of everything. He is the one who's hardened my heart. To put the blame where it belongs. It's a very dangerous objection, isn't it? But we get it. This is one of those objections that we feel. These are the objections that we don't dare to speak out loud. Because we know how dangerous words like this sound. And yet at the same time, we feel them. They are these unspoken burdens, these unspoken wrestlings within our soul that say, I just don't think this is right. And then we get Paul's response. You know, last week in the first objection, where did Paul turn to, to to address and answer the objection? He turned to Scripture. He turned to the Old Testament, to Moses and to Pharaoh, and he used them as these examples of what God has done in the past. He doesn't do that with this one. Instead, he offers a warning. A loving, kind, gentle, but still a warning. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Paul doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't yell back at his objector. He doesn't try to argue with his opponent. But at the same time, the weight of the question that Paul asks is such and it's so heavy and it's so significant that the objector's voice is immediately silent. Who are you? And see, don't read this and think that Paul is just running out of answers here. So he just sort of ends the conversation with his own version of, because I said so. Deal with it. But this statement is where Paul is challenging us. He is reminding us, lovingly and yet authoritatively, apostolically, reminding us, know your place in all of this. Remember who you are, and more importantly, remember who you are not. This is Paul's version of check yourself before you wreck yourself here. Let me, let me show you what, how, how I, I see that, how I know that's what Paul is saying. First, it's his word choice. You notice the, the verb, he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is a word that implies contention. It implies disputation. It implies resistance. If you're a teenager, or you have teenagers, or you ever were a teenager, we don't say answer back. We instead say talk back. And as my mom, who's here this morning, so I can proudly say in front of all, all of you, as my mom frequently told me as a child, don't talk back to me. I don't think it stopped me, but still the answer was there. This is what, this is what Paul is saying. Don't talk back to God. He's not squashing questions. He's not telling you don't ask hard questions. He's not telling you don't speak truth. He's saying be careful how you do it. Because see, Christian, you can struggle with the truth of Scripture. It's allowed. You are, you are encouraged to wrestle with the truths of God's Word in such a way that you come away with saying, I don't know what to do with it. That's okay. You can ask questions. You can push back. You can study. You can wrestle. But that's not what's happening in the objections being raised here. What the objector in verse 19 is doing is not struggling, he's not wrestling, he's not seeking truth, 
He is talking back. You see, what happens when that teenager talks back to their parents, what they're really saying is in that moment, this teenager truly believes that they are right and mom or dad is wrong. This is when a teenager, when a child talks back to their parents, it is a challenge of authority. You don't have the right to tell me. You don't have the right to determine for me. You don't have the right to speak to me. And what Paul is warning this objector and warning us as we wrestle with the truth of Scripture is he's warning us, don't talk back to God. Don't turn to the God of the universe and say, you don't have the right to judge me. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. You don't have the right to blame me for my sins. You don't have the right. Don't you dare. Who are you to talk back to God? I think the second thing that stands out about this verse is the word, it's a contract. In the, in the Greek version of this verse, Paul moves the words around. And at, at opposite ends of the verse, the first word and the last word, first it's man and, and last it's God. And so essentially we could translate it and say, man, who are you to talk back to God? And what he's doing is intentional. He intentionally structures the sentence this way so that he can put man as far away from God as he can in the grammatic structure of this verse. Because theologically, there is no bigger gap that exists between God and man. See, it's not just talking back, but it's about who's doing it and to whom. Who are you, O man, finite, fallen, frail, foolish man? Who are you to answer back, to talk back to the all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God? Because this really gets to the heart of the objection, doesn't it? Paul reveals what the biggest problem and what the, the biggest objection is to the doctrine of election. I don't like it. God can't do that to me. You see, we are creatures who think we're creators. What little authority we have, we imaginatively and, and falsely stretch it to think that it would somehow encompass even what God can and cannot do in my life. We don't like the doctrine of election because we don't like having a God who's bigger than our decision. We don't like having a God who has complete, sovereign, and authoritative control over my life, and more than that, over my eternal destiny. And Paul kindly and graciously, pastorally says, Christian, know your place. Remember who you are and remember who God is. And make sure you see that difference and that you understand who you're talking back to before you even open your mouth. So Paul doesn't stop here. He, he builds on this with an example where he compares God as this potter or this molder and mankind as this clay. Look at, look at verses 20 and 21. This is what Paul says. He says, Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Let me give you two quick truths here from these verses. First, the creature has no say over the Creator. The creature has no say over the Creator. You see, we may not have many potters here this morning, but I do know that we've got many of you who are still craftsmen in various areas and expertise. For example, Benny and Willard are excellent woodworkers. Many of you probably have some of the things that they have made in your home right this moment. But imagine either Benny or Willard walking into their wood shop and taking a piece of wood and looking at it and saying, I'm going to use it, I'm going to make a box out of it, I'm going to make a, a, a clock out of it. And the wood immediately speaking up and saying, no, 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 I'm not a clock. I'm a post. I mean, we, we would laugh at this, and if Benny walked into the house and told Bonnie that the wood just spoke to me, she'd immediately call the psychiatrist. But ultimately, what we're doing, what Paul is saying is, you are clay, God is the potter. You are the wood, God is the woodworker. You don't have a say in how you are used, in how you are formed, in how you are molded. And yet, this is precisely what we do when we talk back to God. You are a creature. You are not the creator. You do not and cannot dictate to God what he is allowed and not allowed to do. Not with your life or the lives of any other creature. No more than a piece of clay can dictate how they are formed in the potter's hand. Second truth from these verses. The Creator has full discretionary authority over all his creatures. The Creator has full discretionary authority over all of His creatures. You see, just like you can use wood to, to make whatever you please, God has the right to do with you and with your life whatever He pleases. The potter can take the same lump of clay and from one part of that piece make something that a king will eat his dinner off of. And then take the other part of that same lump of clay and make a tool that will clean out the tree. It depends not on the clay, but on the potter. Love ones, never, never forget who you are and, and never forget who God is and just how far apart those two people are. Christian, know your place. Second calling in light of election is to check your pride. Check your pride. You see, there's something that happens to people when they begin to really grasp this doctrine of election. And it's actually the opposite of what you think might happen. You see, in theory, what should happen when we begin to understand that we are powerless and that God is sovereign, that we are in the hands of a creator to do it as he pleases, what should happen is we should become more humble, not more arrogant. And somehow, the opposite occurs. I can remember in college, after two or three years of wrestling with this teaching, I joined a campus ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And at the same time that I began joining and being a part of RUF, I also did Young Life, and I was a Young Life leader. 
which is a, a ministry, a parachurch ministry, that worked to reach high school students that were not affiliated and had never even stepped foot in a church, had never heard the gospel of Jesus. And so these two ministries that I was a part of at, at, towards the end of my college years were, were great and fruitful ministries, but they could not be farther apart theologically. In one group, you had students of the Word who dove deeply into scriptures, who knew the Bible, who knew and studied theology a lot. In the other group, you had young men and women who loved the law and regularly sacrificed their time, their social lives, and even their grades to reach the lost and bring them to Christ. I can remember a conversation that I had with uh, a member of my NYC team, and, and she was struggling with how she related to RUF. And she had been invited to come to RUF events and, and didn't really know how to fit in. And she struggled because the relationships were, were different. The community was different. The, the engagement, the interaction was different. And so she came to me one, one evening after an RUF meeting and she said, Dr. Dr. I don't really like the RUF crowd. You're arrogant. You act like you know the Bible better than I do. And sadly, I wish I could say I said something else, but this is what I said. That's because I do. The doctrine of election that reformed theology highlights the weaknesses and the sinfulness of man. And the grace, and it, it elevates the grace and the mercy of God. And you would think that this would humble us, but somehow even that sin can twist. And pride puffs up even over the knowledge of Scripture. You see, when we talk about election and we talk about deep truths of Scripture, there is a great need for this pastoral, gentle, loving, humble voice. You see, Paul makes clear that humanity is divided into vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And while God ultimately decides who is who, if you are a vessel of mercy, it is not so that you can gloat over vessels of wrath. Several years ago, out on the West Coast, there was a, a big ecumenical conference on faith. And it wasn't a Christian conference per se, but it was more of a, a conference where they gathered together religious leaders from all the various religions in the area and asked them to just come in this, uh, this spirit of community and togetherness and share their beliefs, share what they, what they believe and see what these various faiths had in common. And it was meant to be a time for engaging discussion and not conflict. And so naturally, conflict broke out. And in one of these breakout sessions at this conference, there was a, a Christian pastor who was on stage, and, and as he looked out on this room of both Christians and non-Christians, he turned and said to the audience, the fact of the matter is that some of you God made to be matchless and nothing more. Now the thing is, each of you... You do what I, what I do when I hear that story. I, I grimace. It hurts. Why would you ever say that? But there's really two questions to be asked regarding it. Was he wrong in what he said? No. Was he wrong in how he said it? Absolutely. One thousand percent. She was in that statement and how it was said and to whom it was said, 
Where is the love of Christ? Completely out. Christian, if you understand election, don't be arrogant for those who are still wrestling with it. But pray for their understanding. Help them think through it. Answer questions they have. Walk them through the same struggle and the same understanding that you have. Pray for their understanding. Pray for the Spirit to open their eyes and shine light on deep biblical truth. Because you didn't arrive at this on your own. It's given to you. The other big practical critique of election regards how it relates to evangelism. Some will say, if salvation is all on God, then evangelism is pointless. God will save whom he saves, regardless of whether or not I tell him about Jesus. And that's true. But election does not remove evangelism or discourage a love for the law. It actually encourages evangelism. Because it is based not on my ability to persuade, not on my ability to convince someone of the truth of the gospel, not to reach into someone's heart and bring it to life, but my evangelism rests on God's ability to save and nothing more. Remember how this chapter of Romans 9 began? Paul begins the clearest and, and deepest discussion on the doctrine of election not by blasting the law, but by mourning for Mourning for his fellow kinsmen, mourning for his Jewish brothers and sisters who are cut off and cursed, cut off from Christ. And Paul says, I wish that I could switch places with them. And ultimately from that, moves into this discussion of election because Paul is trusting that these people that he mourns for, the lost that are far from God, are still under God's control. See, to think that election doesn't require you to evangelize or to love the lost, that's fine. It's putting yourself above the calling and the command of God on your life, where God says very clearly, Christian, love the lost, seek the lost, pursue the lost, make disciples of all nations. And the best part is that election assures you that no matter how poorly you speak, no matter how horribly you butcher the gospel, Paul steps into Corinth and proclaims the gospel with stuttering speech and weakness and frailty. And God can use stutterers and stammerers to proclaim the gospel and save the law. Because salvation belongs to the Lord and not you. And not me. And because of this, we must check our pride. Third, lastly, we'll move through this, this one quickly. Third, consider the purpose. Consider the purpose. See, there's one ultimate question that comes up with election. And it doesn't matter on what road you start this journey of understanding this doctrine, you will always inevitably end up in this area and you'll ask this question. If God is truly sovereign, as you say, Paul, if he is in control over all of it, then why did he choose it to be this way? And these are, these are some of the deepest waters here. So take a deep breath and jump in with me. Why, God, did you allow sin to enter the world? Why did you plant that stupid tree in Eden? Why did you allow the serpent to deceive Adam and Eve? If you are sovereign over all of these things, why did you allow it? 
Why is this the path that you chose? Not just for me, but for all of creation, for all of history. And look at verses 22 and 23. Because Paul gives a similar what if in regards to this question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory of, of four vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? See, ultimately, the question needs to be asked, why does God not simply just destroy all the people that are destined for destruction? Why allow them to live? Why allow them to prosper? Why allow them to suffer? Just end them. Never let them be born. If you're this sovereign over it all, surely you could do that. Why don't you? But what if, as Paul says, what if it's because God is patient? But what if God's patience is different than our patience? You see, when we are called to be patient, we are called to wait because we don't know what's coming and we don't know what's down the road and we have no power to influence it. And so we are called to wait. Wait on something to change. Wait on someone to change their, their mind or their life or their actions. We are patient because we have no control. That is not the case for God. God is patient and has full control. God is both patient and sovereign, which means that his patience is not his waiting on something to change, but his patience is waiting on the timing to be rushed. He is waiting on his timing to be perfect. I think there's really two purposes of God's patience all throughout Scripture. First, God's patience enables him to reveal his anger for sin and at the same time his saving power for God. It allows him, by simply not destroying Adam and Eve the moment they ate the fruit of the truth, by, by, by allowing Israel to remain under his covenant despite how many countless times they broke it. He waited until his timing was perfect so that he could send Christ in the fullness of time to show you his wrath against sin and the saving power of the gospel. That was patience. But his patience also is to allow the rebellion of man to gain full force from his temperance. So that when he has ultimate victory over those in rebellion against him, his victory will be seen as all and the most glorious that it could be. And in this patience, it allows the opportunity for God to bestow mercy on each and every one of those that he has chosen to show mercy. Consider the Exodus. God was patient with Pharaoh, wasn't he? But we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, and I, I shouldn't say, that God was patient with Pharaoh in the hopes that Pharaoh would get things straight and turn things around and come back to God and believe. God was patient with Pharaoh to the effect that God would receive the most glory from Pharaoh's Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. But instead of destroying Pharaoh from the very start, God was patient with Pharaoh, allowing his simple rebellion to go unpunished for a time. Why would he do this? 
also that Israel, these vessels of mercy, would see the wrath and the power of God on display against God's enemies. And if it was true for Pharaoh and for Israel, then it must surely be true for us. God is patient with vessels of wrath destined for destruction because he wants you, his vessels of mercy, to have a deeper, clearer, better picture of who he really is. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, it is a proper and an excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that every aspect of his glory should be seen. He continues and he says, there would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there were no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. If there is no sin, then how would we ever know of God's justice? If there is no death, how would we ever know of God's power over death. If there is no rebellion, if there is no enemies against God, how would we ever know that he is almighty? You see, God makes some vessels that are destined for destruction to reveal his wrath and his power against their sins. And the revelation of this righteous wrath, however, is not the ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose is not so that you would see his wrath and be afraid. But the ultimate purpose of revealing this wrath is so that you, his vessels of mercy, would see the immeasurable richness and the preciousness of this mercy emblazoned on the consciousness of your mind. The mercy of God would not be impressed on the consciousness of humans apart from the exercise of God's wrath. Without wrath, we do not understand mercy. One commentator put it this way, and I thought it was appropriate considering we're outside. Just as one delights more richly in the warmth, the beauty, and the tenderness of spring, after you've experienced the cold blast of winter. God's ultimate purpose is to display his glory to all people. His glory is exhibited through both wrath and mercy, but especially mercy. Think of the, the I mean, we could even think this morning how hot and muggy it is here outside. And we can look forward and say, man, how refreshing fall will be when it how refreshing those cool weather days will be. But it's only what makes fall so much sweeter is the heat of August. It's the heat of July. Does he know how hot it was? What makes spring so much better is the cold, deathly atmosphere of winter. And we see everything warm up and come back to life that becomes so much sweeter than if it were just green all the time. What Paul is saying is this hypothetical situation in verses 22 and 23. What if God has been patient with vessels of wrath, not wiping them out, not destroying them today, but he's been patient so that when he does, you will see and understand his wrath. And more than that, you will see and understand his mercy. 
Love and God, I don't, I don't pretend for a moment with the doctrine of election. But I do believe it's true. And I believe that not because I've come up with it, but because I see it written on the pages of Scripture. And because it is true, it challenges us in ways that can be extremely difficult. But when we consider the things of God, like election, we need to tread carefully. Know your place. You are the creature, not the creator. And he has every right to do with you as he pleases. But the best part about that is that God is good and righteous always. And so whatever he pleases to do with you and with your life will always be good and righteous. It will never be unfair. It will never be evil. So we can trust him as we know our place in front of him. We need to check our pride. Just because you belong to God's elect does not make you a better person. It simply means that God is merciful. Because you deserve exactly what vessels of wrath deserve. And as God reveals to you the deep truths of Scripture, remember that you did not come to these realizations on your own. But this insight was given to you not by me, but by the Spirit. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And with this, let us be a people who pursue the law. Not because they will die without us, but because God has chosen to use us to accomplish His purpose. We get to go to work with, with the Father. Every day is take your child to work day for God. And we get to see Him in His glory as He shows His mercy and His grace to undeserving people like that. And lastly, we should consider the purpose of it all. God has done all of this in exactly this way so that you will see him as he is. Not as you imagine he to be, or what you wish he was like, but to see him in all of the splendor and the glory and the majesty that belongs to him and him alone. You've seen his wrath for sin, his power poured out. You know his anger, his holiness, his justice, because he righteously condemns sin. You've seen it. You've seen this wrath. The divine grace you have not seen. Because someone else has tasted it for you. What you've tasted, Christian, is mercy. Grace. And all of it done so that at the end of it, at the end of it all, every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. God, we are thankful for your word and thankful for this, this hard truth. Help us to see it. Whether we fully understand it or not, help us to be okay with lacking understanding. God, for if, we, if we understood all that you are and all that you were, it would cease to be God. If you were to be able to fit into any box of our own mental making, you would cease to be the God of the universe. Because even our minds would contain you. But we're thankful that our minds cannot contain you. And that you are bigger. Bigger than any box we can dream up, any parameters we can place, any boundaries we can draw. You are bigger. Thank you for your word and how you have revealed your glory to us. 
Help us to see your patience. Help us to marvel at your patience. And help us to stand and share in your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.